Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. This is not a fun scripture text. Uh, This is a scripture text that makes Jesus sound rather bad, callous, insensitive, and quite frankly, uh, not real messianic. It doesn't sound like something that you'd want your Savior to to say to you. So today, as we continue to address these difficult scriptures, I want us to think about all the ways in which people have tried to explain the scripture away. I love it when I hear people say, well, maybe what it really means is this. And I'm thinking, you just don't like what it says, do you? You don't want to talk about what it says. You know, we make things metaphorical, metaphysical. We make them, you know, well, it's just Jesus is alluding to something here. Sometimes Jesus just calls it out as it is. So here's some of the ways in which this text has been explained away. Some scholars uh, from both sides have said, well, maybe what's happening here is that Jesus is saying, let the physically dead bury the, let the, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. It's so ridiculous that I have trouble remembering what it was. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. So if people are spiritually dead, they, they're not engaged in the spirituality of their faith and that sort of thing, then let them handle it. And all the rest of us that are followers of Jesus, we will go and handle the other stuff that Jesus wants to handle. That's absolutely obscene, one. If that's true, why does the church spend so much time, energy, resources, and intentionality on services of death and resurrection? It's very important to us to comfort those who mourn, to benedict and bless a life that has been spent in good service. We spend a lot of our time and energy on funerals, memorial services, all of which come under the liturgical umbrella of services of death and resurrection. And notice it's death and resurrection. We think it's very important to convey to people that you have not seen the last of your loved ones, that we have a healthy theology of the hope that we have, that even in the midst of our sorrow in this life, that there will come a day when we are once more reunited because of God's good promise of the resurrection, that we will once more embrace those that we have loved and lost. And if Jesus really was saying that that's for the spiritually dead, then my calendar should look a lot different. And the life of the church would look a lot different. But instead, we have been shown how important it is. Jesus even shows us this in the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They were three siblings, and Jesus spent a lot of time with them. While they did not travel around with Jesus, whenever he was in town, They offered their ministry of hospitality, opening up their home and their food and allowing him and all of his apostles to be fed and have a safe and warm place to sleep. And so the story so tells us in scripture that at one point while Jesus was not in their hometown, he was out and word came to him that Lazarus had gotten very sick. And the apostles thought that Jesus would rush right back, that Jesus would go really quickly and heal Lazarus. And Jesus tarries, and he starts dropping hints that Lazarus is going to die. 
and that he is aware of this. And then finally he decides in good time that they shall go back, and when they get there, we are already clued in that Jesus is going to resurrect Lazarus, that Lazarus is not permanently dead. However, even knowing what he's going to do, Jesus shows up there at the house of Martha and Mary and sees not only them mourning and in great distress, but then he sees the community that is gathered to mourn together collectively and share in the pain and suffering of Lazarus' family, and they are crying, and in the midst of all of this and seeing this, and yet knowing that Lazarus is going to rise, Jesus cries. Jesus sees their pain, their suffering, and he doesn't go, he's not really dead, stop it. He has incredible empathy, and he cries for them and with them. So no, I don't think that we can just wash that away with, well, the spiritually dead will bury the dead. In fact, some of the most spiritual people I've known are in the funeral business. That wouldn't make much sense. And so here we are. What's option two? Option two, I really love. I love this one because there's something very human about trying to add in a whole bunch of words where Jesus says none. And so there's another option that people put forth that says, well, this person was asking to stay with their family until the time that their father died because there was a huge custom in Judaism at that time that the oldest son should perform what amounts to almost a week of funeral prep and mourning and then receive the inheritance and that that person was actually saying, let me wait until my father dies and then I will come and be in your service. Did I read that? I don't remember reading that. I think my scripture reading would have been a lot longer if I read that. Let me go back and make sure. I believe what I read was, another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Not, one day my father will die and I need to wait here until my father dies. And then once I settle his estate and handle all of the state taxes, I will come and see you. Those words are not in here. But it comforts us to put them in there because then it doesn't make Jesus seem like he's callous. What we actually have to do here is go back and see the context in which the scripture was written. This little paragraph here actually has two encounters, two would-be followers. It says at 18, now when Jesus saw the great crowds around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. All of these people started to amass themselves and crowd in on Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus saw this happening. Now, why are these people coming? They're coming because Jesus is already becoming famous. People have heard about his healings. They've heard about his feedings. People have heard that he's stirring trouble with his words. And so they want to come and see, just like a celebrity. They want to come and look at him and go, hey, I saw that Jesus of Nazareth, and I got a piece of the fish. Right? They want to be able to say that, or I was there when he healed my cousin. Right? They want to be able to say these things. And so they've crowded around Jesus, and Jesus is like, we have work to do. We need to go to the other side. We need to go over here. I'm not ready to do this at this moment. And then it says at 19, a scribe then approached and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds admirable. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Somebody just came up to Jesus and said, where you go, I will go. My people will be your people. Wait, that's the book of Ruth. 
Somebody just showed up and said, I am committing myself to following you. And you know what Jesus said? I'm homeless. That's what Jesus said. I'm a homeless man. And we have to look really carefully at the language. You'll notice that the person that approached Jesus is a scribe. He's of the literati class. He's educated. He's literate. Someone who apprenticed to become this. And he has a very upper class job. He doesn't work with his hands, per se. He reads and he transcribes. He's respected. He probably has a nice home because he is specialty. And yet he comes to Jesus and he says to him, teacher. None of the 12 refer to Jesus as teacher. None of them. He is not their teacher. He is their Messiah. And so the scribe comes and he initiates a linguistic offer. If you will be my teacher, I will be your apprentice. Jesus isn't looking for apprentices. Jesus is looking for disciples. An apprentice is somebody that wants to come in and learn what you have so that they can go off and do their thing and profit from it. That's what an apprentice is. There's nothing wrong with being an apprentice, but that's not why Jesus was here. Jesus wasn't looking for an apprentice. He wasn't looking how to train people to multiply fishes and loaves. He wasn't looking how to train people to cast out demons. Jesus wanted people who were going to build the kingdom. He wanted people who were going to be so invested in the gospel that they would transform the world, not take what they'd learned and go live out their life. That's not what Jesus wanted. And so the scribe gets the rebuke with the title, the Son of Man. The Son of Man, God in human form, God very present with us, but the one who was prophesied to suffer and die for God's people. That's the title that Jesus uses with him. And Jesus says, you know, you're looking for something, and I'm a homeless man. Are you really going to give up your comfort and your security and your home and come and follow me? Well, we suspect no because we don't have this man's name, and we quickly move on in the story. And the story goes on to the next part, right? Another of his disciples. The gospel account of Matthew is very careful here. Naming this person a disciple, this is somebody who seems to be in already. And in the scriptures, discipleship is invitational. You don't just walk up and say, I'm your disciple, Jesus. Jesus invites them in. He handpicks the 12. And he invites them to do something radical. He invites them into a level of connection and relationship with their God that is terrifying to most people. And he invites them to come and follow. And not only to witness the glory of his earthly miracles and his ministry, but also to experience the persecution, the pain, and the suffering, and their own failures at trying to do what Jesus does. And into this they are invited. Into this we are invited. And Jesus has hard words for us. Because God doesn't pull any punches when it comes to following our Lord. God is very open and honest that this is not an easy path. But it is a worthwhile path. It is the one that will transform not only us and our families and our friends, but the world if we are willing to commit to it. And so Jesus says something very hard. You're asking me if you can go and bury your father. 
But Jesus knew that his time was incredibly short. Three years. There is no time. You will have to come with me now. You will have to leave that and follow me. And most people can't do that. And that's not because they're evil, sinful people. It's because it is near impossible to live that way without being fully committed to it. If you doubt, if you can come up with reasons, and people have them. I can't right now. I have young children. I can't. My teenager schedule is very crazy. When my kids go off to college, I will do it. You know, once I take care of my aging parents, then I might have the ability to step into that role. Or people will say, you know, when I retire and my schedule opens up. Right? We hear these. Th- You're laughing because you hear these things. Stand here and hear these things. Right? We hear these things. Sit there and hear these things. That there will be time. You know, one day, I would love to, but I really think that maybe another time. Right? Those are the kinds of responses that we give because it is asking for a radical re- reorienting. And God fills the scriptures with God's response. Right? Look at the p- piece of the Exodus that we don't really focus on. God says to Moses, who is on the lamb for capital murder, I have heard my people's cry, and I am sending you to set them free. Do you know what his response is? Absolutely not! (laughs) No! Not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, five times. No! Not going. And some of his excuses are really bad. I don't even know your name. Done. I am who I am. They're not going to believe me. Sure they are. I have miracles. I don't speak very well. You have a brother. God's not taking no for an answer. And finally, number five, Moses goes, I don't want to go. Send somebody else. You're going. You're going. It doesn't matter what you want. I want you, and you will go. And he doesn't go like, yes, I'm all in. I'm amazing, God. You're right. I'm so silly. He spends all the way through the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy complaining. Numbers 11. These are not my people. They're your people. You yoked them with me. I told you I didn't want to go. God was very smart. Do you notice in the story of Moses that when he gets there and he sees this bush that seems to be in fire but not consumed, he gets there and God says, take off your sandals, right? And we always go, for it is. Like, why are the only people listening? It's holy ground, right? No, 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 no. That's so you can't run away. Take off your shoes, Moses, because you're going to stay here for a while. We're going to have a talk. It's holy, but it's not going to be loved. The scriptures are full of people that said no, tried to. Jonah, Jonah, I am sending you to the capital city of the people that you hate. Jonah goes, absolutely not. And God says, no, 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 I want you to go because, you know, they've been very bad and they need to repent so that, you know, they don't get destroyed. I need you to go over there. He goes, are you kidding me? Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh, I'm waiting I want you to rain down some hellfire and brimstone. I'm not 
going over there to save those people. I want front row seats for the destruction. And God says, no, you're going. And Jonah goes, no, I'm not going. I'm buying a ticket on this ship, and I'm going that way. And God says, no, you're not. No, you're not. Because I will send the hurricane, and I will send the large fish. I will send whatever I have to send to make you do what I want you to do. And most of us go, thank God I'm not Moses and Jonah. Thank God that's the Old Testament. Instead, God is saying to us that there are some things that are worth sacrificing our hopes and dreams. There are some things that are worth giving up what we thought we wanted. At 9.30, I asked the kids, I asked the kids, what, is, what do you want to be when you grow up? They had great answers. We have a whole bunch of veterinarians in the making. I got a geologist coming up, a pro baseball player shooting high. Got a mermaid. That was interesting. I'm going to grow up and be a mermaid. I was like, yes, you are going to like transfigure. I like it. Let's do it. So they have all these dreams. And my next question to them was, can you grow up and be a good Christian too? Yeah. They all said, yeah, of course we can. I said, do you think every adult grows up to be a good Christian? Ooh. How many of us are really good at what we do, but we don't go on to the same perfection with our faith? How many of us are not showing these children that we truly can be a really great Christian as well as an amazing accountant, amazing doctor, a really good leader of a nonprofit? How many of us are as dedicated as they are at this time, as committed, because they got fire in their eyes, and they're ready? I can do that. I can be an amazing baseball player, and I can be a good Christian. They are convinced that it is possible. Are we showing them that it can be done? Are we showing the children? Because I don't know if you've been watching and listening to the same news that seems to be inescapable right now. But I actually read somebody's post the other day that says, is there not one person in this entire country that hasn't had a mess of a past? No, we're Christians. We know that there's no such person. Jesus ain't on the ballot. So we recognize that people will fail. As bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and as excited as all those kids were this morning, every single one of them is going to make mistakes. They're going to commit crimes. They're going to fail, and they are going to sin. The difference between a Christian and a not-Christian is how we handle our sin. That is the only difference. That a Christian says, I have done wrong. I don't want to do that anymore. I am literally turning my back on that so that I can seek reconciliation with those that I have harmed. So that I can move on into a grace-filled life where I no longer continue to perpetuate that sin, evil, and pain. That's the difference with a Christian. That a Christian seeks to move beyond the perpetuation of pain and suffering and sin. But people have ideas about Christians, right? You can't put a Christian on that board. We don't want to elect a Christian. They believe weird things. And they follow a weird book. A book that says all kinds of bizarre things. Like you can't eat a bacon cheeseburger. Seriously, I get these critiques. Yeah, 
But you know what else this book says? This book says every single human being is of sacred worth. It says that all people are worthy of being loved by God because God says, I will love you. This is a book that also says that you shall not destroy people. It is a book that says that there is nothing that you can do from which you cannot be redeemed. But why does the world not hear that? It doesn't hear that. It doesn't resonate with them. That's not the critique they reflect back as they call us hypocrites and hateful people. Instead, they don't hear the true testimony because too many of us don't testify. Too many of us don't preach with our lives what discipleship is. And those children will never know if we don't live it. Eight years I served a church in Norfolk, and one of my central ministries was to our homebound members. And one of my church members, who was very vibrant, eventually got into her late 80s and became homebound, and she could no longer leave her apartment. And I went to visit her one day, and her entire affect had changed. Everything about her, she was a strong, grounded, hopeful person when she used to sit in the pew. But then suddenly I went to see her, and she was scared. There was a terror about her. And I couldn't figure out what had changed. She was convinced the world was coming to an end. And then I realized she was watching 24-hour-a-day news. I said, you've got to turn that off. She said, but I'm stuck here and I want to know what's going on in the world. I want to hear how the world is doing. I said, that's not helping. I said, they're not going to tell you the truth. What do you mean they're not going to tell me the truth? And by the way, she wasn't just watching a channel. She was scrolling through all of them. But the problem was that we have a world that feeds on fear. It is a world that believes that if you cause people to fear, you can control them. You can direct their behavior to alleviate their fear and give them security. And so the world was beating her down through news 24 hours a day and making her believe that the world was headed for apocalypse because that's what they were feeding her. I said, they're not telling you the good things. Like what, she said. Like the fact that we fed 200 people at the soup kitchen on Thursday. They're not telling you that. They're also not telling you that we sent over two dozen children and adult, youth and adults to a mission field in Tennessee where they were rebuilding houses. Not telling you that on the news, are they? Why wouldn't they tell me those things, she said. Why? Because that's going to make you go to bed and sleep well. It's not going to make you wake up in fear at 3 a.m. and wonder if the world's falling apart and turn on the TV. Our faith has real world implications. And discipleship, the likes of which what Jesus was challenging this disciple to, are you willing to follow me when everybody else is saying no? Are you willing to do what I've said and what I've asked, even when it's inconvenient? Are you willing to clear your calendar, devote your resources in your bank account? Are you willing to forsake those who will shun you because of me? And we live in a church that is compounded by the excuses, the non-commitment. And so when somebody says, I would love to, but I need childcare, we're going to figure out the childcare. When someone says, I've had an emergency and I have to bring so-and-so and such-and-such, all right, we're going to work through that. 
Because if you are committed to being a disciple, then the church's response should be to empower you, enable you to do it. Because it isn't just about you, and it isn't just about the church. This is about the future of this world. If you've been watching and listening or, God forbid, live streaming the news this week, then it is a very bleak portrayal of our society. It looks bad from every angle. And then we have an opportunity to decide that we're truly going to change things. That we are going to show the children like we had at 9.30, the children that came to worship at 8.30, and the children who will come up for children's time in this worship service, that we believe that they are the ones to change things. That we are going to show them that, yes, you can be a veterinarian and a good Christian. Yes, we are going to show you that just because you're an adult, that you don't have to fall off the faith bandwagon. I asked the kids, have you ever seen an adult get in trouble for not listening? I thought about it for a second. Have you ever seen an adult get a speeding ticket? Woo, they had some stories there. <laughs> Outed some parents. It was a very godly moment. They are watching us. They see us make mistakes, and they are watching to see when we get in trouble because we didn't listen or we didn't see the sign or we were, God forbid, on our phones, did we argue or did we say we were sorry? Did we show them what reconciliation looks like or did we argue that we were just? They want to know what they should grow up to be. And they are waiting to see what we will model for them. Will we show them a church that is built by adults who are willing to stick it out through the tough times? Are we going to show them a church where children are always a priority? And that we truly do care who they are and what they have to say and what God has to say to us through them? Or are we more interested in being comfortable? Where is our allegiance? That's what Jesus asks. Because Jesus is going to ask us to do some things that are radically different from what we want. This is not the life I had envisioned for myself. I used to have hair down to here and wear flats. And I was going to be an oceanographer. I had plans. I had a bucket list. I had the five-year plan. I knew exactly what I needed to do and where I needed to go. And then like Moses and like Jonah and like this disciple, Jesus said, I have a whole new plan. And just like all of them, I was like, oh, no, you don't. No, you don't. I'm going to New Jersey. Not once, but twice. Ha ha. Because surely there's no God in New Jersey. Wrong. Wrong. But it's not just me. This is the story of discipleship. This is what it is about. We think we have ideas and plans. We think that we have goals and things that we want to do. And there are times where we have to say to ourselves, I don't know how this is going to work, God, but if you're going to take me, you got to figure it out. And God says, let's go. There's nothing I can't figure out. If you will commit to me, there is nothing I cannot do. Because later on, Jesus goes on to say, right, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But look at the sparrow and look at the lily. They don't have to worry because God sees them and cares for them. And God will see and care for us. 
It's a reordering of our lives and our priorities so that we can start to show people the real testimony. The real testimony is not a legacy of hatred and exclusion. The real testimony is that God so loved. That's the testimony. That God so loved sinners like us. That God was willing to transform us from sinners to disciples. And continue that good work in others. That's the message. Unfortunately, a great deal of those who call themselves Christians do not want to be disciples. And when we hear texts like this, it's a reminder to those of us who think we want to be disciples that it's painful. That there are times where we are going to feel as if the world is passing us by. There are times where we're not going to get to jump in on whatever's going on late Sunday, Saturday night because we got to be somewhere Sunday morning. That we are willing to put Christ first because that's all Christ has ever done for us is put us first and we will show children and the world that there are those who hear God and are willing to put them first and that is how the world will be transformed that is how it stops being a book and starts being the kingdom and we can do that. Each and every one of us can do that in profound and sometimes surprisingly simple ways when we choose to put Jesus first. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.